Well, again, we're glad that you're here with us today, and I trust that everyone had great holidays, Christmas, New Year's, all good, right? Good stuff. I, I don't know if you heard, but we had over 3,300 people attending our Christmas services, and so that was a huge blessing, and I, I'm sure a lot of you enjoyed that. And, uh, and, and then it's been a great football weekend, right? I mean, Thursday, football on Thursday, football on Friday, Saturday, church and football on Sunday. I mean, this is a great weekend to be alive, right? And I got to tell you, Ohio State beating SEC Alabama, that's almost as good as a national title right there, right? Big Ten over SEC, I know you'd love that. And, uh, and we got more football coming up. I even saw a couple of Dallas Cowboys jerseys right back there. I'm just saying, in the house, I see you back there, all right? Yeah, great day. We, um, we're one church meeting in two locations, and, and we're glad that you're here with us today. We have a, a special guest with us today, actually an old friend of mine, uh, somebody who I met about, I don't know, 15 or 20 years ago. We actually met in Siberia on the other side of the world. Uh, he's been the uh, Asia Regional Director of Missions for Encompass, which is the missions agency we primarily use. And now he's uh, the Senior Director of Strategic Initiatives is his new title. But let's, uh, let's all welcome right now Wayne Hanna. Hey, Kevin. Thanks for being with us. I love you, brother. Thanks so much. Yeah. So everybody has to say something about Ohio State, is that it? Well, I went to Michigan. Yeah? No, I didn't, actually. I'm, I, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an alum of Ohio State, so... Uh, <laughs> but, you know, I thought I'd throw that winger out, you know. I grew up in Dayton, Ohio, Kettering, actually, in that, uh, that area. And uh, my wife and I, Gina, I don't know if she's in this service. She listens to me all the time, so why should she stay for these services, right? But if she's here anyway, Gina is actually from Michigan, and uh, you know, how did that happen? I don't know, an act of God, some sort. But uh, go Bucks! my heart is war it is well with my soul, right? Uh, New Year's Day, yeah, we had some guys over from our mission office that we're located now in Atlanta, Georgia, where now I live, and uh, love it down there, love the south, love the warm weather, played golf last week, I mean, really? So, uh, so we're living down there. And I had five guys over, another guy from Ohio, and we were kind of lonely because the other guys were just uh, for Alabama, just because, right? I mean, we are the most obnoxious fans in the world, us Buckeyes, right? I mean, it's true, but I, I'm okay with that. Yeah, it's worth being obnoxious about, right? And so, uh, so these guys were in, in the room, of course, and Alabama had a little bit of an advantage, and so uh, in early going, we were sitting there thinking, Okay, now we have to have a come up with the disclaimers. Well, kind of thought Alabama might win anyway, you know, but not really. And then by the end of the evening, of course, they were kind of peeling off and saying their gracious goodbyes. And I'm just beaming. Yeah, this is great. Anyway, my wife and I live in Atlanta, Georgia, have for the last couple of years since our mission moved from a place called Winona Lake, Indiana, to Atlanta, Georgia, in a circle of of an area of the city that is the densest and most diverse international population probably on the face of the earth, believe it or not. Small little area, 147 of the unreached people groups uh, around the world are located in our neighborhoods. 
And uh, Gina and I walk out of our apartment and we can't even understand the languages that are just even around us. So cool. And it's so great to, to be you know, among that kind of a, a people. Because for many years, our mission worked in, around the world. And if you're familiar with Encompass World Partners, formerly Grace Brother International Missions, uh, you might be. We've, we're over 114 years old now. And uh, I have been working in Asia for 15 years, Novosibirsk, Siberia, Kyrgyzstan, uh, uh, Turkey, uh, Vietnam, Cambodia, Thailand, Philippines, Japan, all of these countries where we've been involved in and so many diverse ministries, church planting, uh, sex trade relief, uh, sex trade re rescue, uh, involving compassion, poverty, advocacy, all those kinds of ministries. I'm becoming more and more of a specialist in those areas where we're doing more strategizing to reach the places where the least reached are living. It's easy to pick the fruit off that's low-hanging, right? But to really get to the populations where God has, uh, where he's pouring out his spirit now, bringing people to himself, and especially in the Islamic world, I wish I had another Sunday I could talk to you about the way the wind and the spirit of God is blowing through the Islamic world, and people are coming by the thousands and tens of thousands to Jesus Christ. But that's another time and another story. But that's what we're involved in. As I said, grew up in Ohio, pastored for 20 years in Richmond, Virginia, and uh, now in, uh, still in the south in Atlanta, Georgia. Glad to be back in Ohio. And I don't know what I am doing here in Fremont, Ohio, on the first Sunday of 2015. When I was pastoring, it'd be the Sunday that I look forward to probably the most, to set a tone and a tenor, a theme perhaps for the year. Now it's still kind of a holiday weekend and so maybe Kevin decided, well, I'll throw this to Wayne, you know, and then next week I'll take over and we'll do steam. You know, I don't know what steam is all about, but maybe we can get some steam going this week, ready for next year or next week. But uh, no, I'm kind of kidding about Kevin. We're good friends. So, but he, he, uh, when he found out I was coming to Ohio and I, I mentioned it to him, he said, would you preach this Sunday, I think there's a reason for that. I'm almost 66 years old. I'm you know, sorry about it. I hope half of you didn't just cancel me out like you kids down here. Okay. He's way past my, you know, my level of listening to anyone that old. But, uh, but I, I've, I've learned a few things in my lifetime. In 45, somewhere between 45 and 50 years of full-time ministry for Jesus Christ and uh, Christian ministry, I have learned that if there is one resolution that I could make for myself for 2015, and I had, would be so bold as to suggest you make the same resolution, it's this one that we're going to talk about this morning. You make resolutions. I heard a guy at the coffee shop earlier this morning, and maybe it's just he was up, up too early or I don't know, whatever. And he was just saying, you know, oh, holidays, you know, you know, they come and go, and it's not so... You know, it's so big deal anymore. And I was thinking, I wonder what his resolutions were like. You know, my, in the past, if they've been, uh, yours have been like mine, they've been sort of like gain weight, lose weight, usually not gain weight, right? Have you ever heard that as a resolution? That's one of mine for this year. I might explain why in a little while. Lose weight, right? Get fit. All these self things, you know, how I can be a better person in 2015, but I'm going to suggest that there maybe is just the one that over the years has summarized, has become more central to me, and I'm going to suggest it might be yours for, this, for 2015. 
We're going to look at a passage of Scripture, probably well known to you. It's early part of Jesus' ministry on earth. It's found in Luke chapter 4. And we're going to start with looking at verse, 20, uh, at verse 14. So I invite you if, you, if you have a Bible, if you would turn there and you'd uh, follow with this passage, it's going to be on the prompters as well as the, on the screen, so you can follow along on that. I have 17 versions of the Bible on this thing, and I probably, I probably have more than, I, than that even. And it's interesting, uh, hopefully this, this thing won't act up today. Uh, earlier in the early service, it, it shut off. It locked me out, and I couldn't get my finger in the right place in order for it to, to open up again, but I hope I'll stay in the right passage. Luke chapter 4 starts off with one of the more familiar stories about Jesus, and that's his period of temptation when he was in the wilderness for 40 days, fasting and being tempted three major times by the most deadly, demonic, diabolical force in the planet, in fact, in the universe. He withstood the powers and the temptations like you and I could never have experienced in our, in our imagination. But while I don't want to focus on that, while that's powerful, I want to look at what happened next. Right after Jesus was tempted, it says that he went out into the area of Galilee as he was filled with the Spirit, and then he came to the city of Nazareth. And that's significant, most of you know, because Jesus came from Nazareth. That's his hometown. Now, first, before he actually got to Nazareth, the word began to spread around Galilee and to Nazareth of what he was doing. Between the temptation and his entrance into that city, Jesus began to heal people. He healed the lame. He healed the deaf. He healed the blind. He already was getting a reputation for himself, and he had one even before he began that ministry. Now, I don't know what it would be like for you, but if I began to hear about someone that was coming to my town... And he actually had credible, provable, verifiable miracles that he'd been doing elsewhere. I want him to be doing them where I'm, I'm, I am. And not only that, he grew up in my hometown. Imagine that if I was in Nazareth, if you were in Nazareth. Jesus, the hometown guy, grew up. Everybody knew him, and he walks into, the, into that city. Amazing moment. I don't know what that would be like. I remember back in 1969, some of you would have been born then, of course. Some of us remember that time in August of 1969. You know what happened in July of 1969? A man walked on the moon, and he was from Ohio. And not just from Ohio, from Wapakoneta, Ohio. Where in the world is that? Well, you know, because you're not very far from it. And I remember that parade they had for his welcome home. Here's Neil, Shep uh, uh, Neil Armstrong, Neil Shepard. Neil Armstrong coming back to his hometown, that little town of 5,000 people where I got my first speeding ticket. <clears throat> you got it too. The same place on Route 75. That little town of 5,000 people grew to over 50,000 people on that day. For that parade, my old high school back Fairmont down in Kettering, Ohio, came up and was, uh, was invited to be in the part of that parade. I, wasn't, I was out of high school. I was at Ohio State at the time. But I remember that day, Neil Armstrong coming back home. He could have had his pick. He could have had anything he would, had, had wanted. In fact, they decided to name schools after him. They're going to have a museum now, an Air and Space Museum, all of that because of Neil Armstrong coming back to his hometown. And here's Jesus coming to Nazareth, that little guy. Remember all these women? The women have the stories about us as little kids. The men don't remember those stories. 
But the women that tend the nursery and deal with the toddlers and follow us through school, they've got all the juicy stories about us, right? I, if I were to go back to my home church, back in my hometown, some of these people are probably gone now. They're old enough that they've gone on to be with God, but they would have the stories about Wayne Anna. I don't know what the stories were like as Jesus walked into that, into that city of Nazareth, people obviously going ahead of him saying, guess who's coming? Jesus. Yeah, Joe and Mary's son. We know him. He's coming to our town, and he has been doing miracles. Now, I want to set the record straight a little bit about Jesus. Uh, sometimes we get this sense or portray Jesus as this humble person, and indeed he was, but almost as if because he grew up in a carpenter's home that he was a tradesman and of humble means, and yeah, I know, it says about Jesus he had no place to lay his head, and, Etc. But we also kind of assumed then that he was not really highly educated. He was a simple man and a carpenter. By the way, the only one place in the New Testament that calls Jesus a carpenter probably doesn't call him that. It says that Jesus was the son of the carpenter Joseph and Mary. Probably in a lot of the manuscripts it says it's translated two different ways. So only in that one place that's questionable is Jesus even called a carpenter. I like to give a different portrayal of Jesus, especially as it's presented in this passage. Well, look what he does, and I'll unpack it for you a little bit. He began teaching in their synagogues and, all, and was praised by everyone. This is all in all of Galilee. And his teaching goes into the synagogues and teaches. That's loaded. He didn't just walk in and say, hi, I'm here, I'm a teacher, I'm going to preach and teach here in the synagogue. You couldn't do that. I don't care how educated you were, how important you were, I don't care how much of a, a citizen you were, that's, you did not walk into the house of God and teach, number one. Two, it goes on, he says, he came up to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he entered that synagogue in his hometown, and on the Sabbath, and he stood up to read. Wow. He's a teacher, he walks into a synagogue, he can teach, he has the authority, the credibility, the intelligence, the mark of identity that he could be a teacher, and then he also is able to stand up and receive, as the next verse says, the book of the prophet Isaiah was then handed to him by the tenders of the book, of the scrolls, and he opened the book and found the place where it was written. You know, before Jesus was 12 years old, in fact, before, when he was quite young, when he was be, even being able to speak, he began to learn the Old Testament scriptures. Every Jewish boy did. Every boy from, from Israel learned the scriptures. And every parent was hopeful that their little boy would grow up to become a rabbi, a rabbi, a teacher. And every boy entered into that, into that track but only a few made it through the sections of testing. Year after year, sometimes 18 months or so after periods of time where they would be tested, and only the few that made it were good enough could go on. And by the time that Jesus was 12, he left the Sefer uh, period of training, had memorized all of the Old Testament, five books of the Old Testament, the Torah, the first five books, memorized them. I can't even remember John 3.16 anymore weren't for the promptings of football games. 
I can remember those, and he memorized them. And then beyond the age of 12, he, mid, he moved into what was called the Midrash period, where he began to be articulate and, and memorized massive parts of the rest of the Old Testament scriptures. And he continued to test to the level that he finally made it to be able to be called master, rabbi, teacher. You know, 60 times, either Jesus is, in the New Testament, Jesus is either called teacher, very specific word, or rabbi. And one questionable time, carpenter. Jesus was an intelligence, intelligent man. He was among the intelligentsia. He would be, in our society, he'd probably have triple doctorates. All right, he dabbled with carpentry because he grew up in that carpenter's home. But Jesus was a man to be reckoned with, even at age 12. Remember that gives credibility, that story when Joseph and Mary didn't even know what happened to Jesus. He's 12 years old, and they travel a little while and figure out, hey, he's not in the caravan. Where is he going back? And they find him teaching the school, uh, discussing the scriptures with the scribe, it's scribes and the, uh, and the other rabbis and the other masters of the Old Testament scriptures. At 12, I think I remember how to tie my shoestrings at 12 years old, right? You can imagine that. And now Jesus has come back to their town and he has accorded one of the greatest honors that he could be accorded. And that is to be handed the actual scroll of Isaiah, the prophet. Whoa! I wish I could have been there knowing what I know about him today. And not only did Jesus take that scroll and read like what was coming next, like last week we studied this and this week we studied this and this week he was told what he should read next. He went right to a passage of scripture that most of the rabbis would never read. Isaiah 60, 61 and Isaiah parts of, of, of Isaiah 9. And I'll tell you why in just a minute. Listen to the words. Verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Isaiah said those words first to the people of Israel. Isaiah the prophet said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. At that point, Isaiah, at the first couple of phrases, okay, Isaiah can say that, but if you read further in the passage, you realize this is not talking about Isaiah the prophet. This is talking about the coming Messiah. And he gives sight to the blind to set free those who are oppressed to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. In other words, the beginning of the arrival of Hamashiach, Messiah, Jesus. That passage of scripture was skipped over when people would read the scriptures because they could not say those words that personalized it. So when Isaiah said it even, he said, I'm speaking about the coming Messiah. And when the rabbis would go through the passage, they'd skip it because they couldn't bring themselves to use that personal pronoun about themselves. They wouldn't even read these passages. They would skip them because they were too personal, too much about Jesus and a rabbi could never put himself. It's kind of like when they would never use the word Adonai or Yahweh. Remember? They wouldn't even speak the word God because it was so precious. So they would skip this passage. And Jesus went like an arrow right to it. You think not? It says right here. And found the place where it was written. He searched. He went right to this passage. Because it spoke about him. 
He was the only one, really, since Isaiah spoke it the first time, that could say it of himself. And so he says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. Remember by now, he's healed the blind. He's healed the, the lame and the sick to set free those who are kept oppressed and to proclaim the favorable year, the beginning of the time of Messiah. And he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. You think? <laughs> you bet they were. Are you kidding me? He's basically said, I am he. No one dares do that. It's kind of like the old, some of you young people would remember this, but it was that old commercial when E.F. Hutton speaks, everybody listens, right? You guys have seen the scene in a restaurant where there isn't even a, you know, a, the noise of a silverware anymore because people are listening for that investment from E.F. Hutton. Man, this is what it was like. Supercharged with emotion. And Jesus sat down and all the eyes were fixed on him. I don't know what that would be like, but... What a moment. Now I want you to jump down to verse 28. Don't read that middle period. Some of it in your Bibles, it's red. Don't read it yet. Verse 28. And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. And they got up and drove him out of the city. And they led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff to kill him. What happened? What in the world happened? This is a, these are only minutes that have transpired between the time that they're adoring him, proclaiming him, and hanging on every word this man would say. And the next moment, they want to kill him. What could he possibly have said? Well, let's look at it. Verse 24 goes back and says, uh, verse 23 rather, no doubt, you will quote, you people here in Nazareth will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. That doesn't mean you, physician, who have diseases, heal yourself first. That's not a taunt. It's basically saying, you, yourself, physician, heal. That's what it's saying. It goes on and expounds on that. It says, whatever we need, uh, excuse me, whatever we heard was done in Capernaum, do here now among us in your hometown. He goes on to say, and a prophet is not welcome in his hometown. Neil, Neil Armstrong was welcome in his hometown as a hero. He was a very modest and humble man, but he walked out of that city and he was still a hero. Jesus walked out of this city and he was the scum of the earth and worthy to be killed. Why is a prophet without honor in his hometown? Because he has to speak the words of God to people he loves and love him. And that's not always easy. We even know that as parents, don't we? <laughs> it's the old, this is going to hurt you more than it hurts me. <laughs> yeah, right. Hurt me a lot, Dad. <laughs> yeah, but it hurt me more. Why? Because I had to do it. I, had, I love you so much, I cannot let you, you, 
Do you remember those words, kids? <laughs> You're still hearing those words. Okay. Yeah. Prophets have to speak the truth. Jesus is obligated. He cannot speak lies. He's speaking the truth. Therefore, he's saying to the people in Nazareth, I can read your thoughts. You are not going to be happy with me. You don't know who I am. You think you do, and you think you know what you want, but you don't, and I do. You want me to do here all of the healing and the miracles that I've already done and I'm going to continue to do, you want him to do here, be here in Nazareth? I would. I would. I'd be the first in line. Oh, man, are you kidding? If I knew somebody that really credibly, authentically, believably healed people, I'd be right in the front of the line. And there have been times where I have been. Back in 1973, I'd gone over to France as a missionary. I came back and ended up in Ohio State University again, but not in the school, not in a classroom, but in the hospital dying of Crohn's disease. It had ravaged my small intestine to the point they had to take out big hunks of it or I was going to die. I was down to 98 some pounds when I, was, uh, when I was released from the hospital in 1973. And a few months later, I met my wife and she weighed more than me. Now, don't go there. <laughs> 98 pounds, right? So she outweighed me by two pounds. And to this day, some 40-some years later, I still suffer from this disease, and it didn't stop back in that hospital. And I don't want to put myself up as some kind of hero, but I don't know if you know anything about your anatomy, but the small intestine, you can't live without. It's one of the things like a heart and a brain thing like that. You cannot live without it. They're doing some transplants, but it don't work very well. You have about 28 feet of small intestine. Oh, gross. I don't even want to think about that. You know, but if you took one end, and, and, you, and don't do this at home, and you took the other end and spread it out. You're talking 28 feet. I mean, like from one end of the room to the other, this is how much I have. And so in another Ohio hospital three years ago up in Cleveland Clinic, they're saying, you know, we've got so much taken out of you now, you can't live without intravenous feeding. And so we're going to put a port in you so that you, we can feed you. And every day you're going to like, yeah, six or eight to 12 hours every day IVs. I travel to Vietnam, Cambodia, Thailand, Russia, all, Asia all the time. Are you kidding me? My wife and I looked at each other and we wept. Life as we knew it, ministry as we knew it was over. The problem is the port clotted and they can't put a port in anymore. What are we going to do now as they're saying you can't survive with just this much because you can't absorb enough. We walked out of the hospital with one doctor eventually saying, let them try. I don't know whether it's of God, I don't know whether it's a miracle, whatever, but this is all I've got, and here I am three years later. And we are, yeah, amen. Amen. God has really sustained us. It's a miracle. Listen to my diet, though. This is kind of cool. The rest of you, I don't know what you, resolutions you've made, but some of them might be about diet. Would you like mine? High salt, high fat, high calorie, high protein, high carb. Huh? Is that resonating with you? I'm sure all of you have resolution just like that, right? So I'm at Chud's last night, and I get the fatty prime rib, please, right? Well, people say to me, Wayne, that'll kill you. <laughs> no, I don't absorb it. I don't absorb it. So, you know, I can eat it all. I kind of keep, I have to watch the sugar, but that's another story. 
I had to be first in line. And there are people just like me in Nazareth that would have been first in line. But from that moment, lining up for Jesus to be my Messiah, my healer, my helper, and a few minutes later to wanting to kill him, what happened? A few words. Two stories. There were many widows, verse 25, in Israel in the days of Elijah, 1 Kings 16. When the sky was shut up for three years and six months, a great famine, there were descriptions of famine back then where they would eat the dung of birds or they would kill their babies in order to survive. This is how bad it was in the house of Israel, particularly in Samaria. When a great famine came over all the land and let Elijah... God's prophet of Israel was not sent to one of them, but to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, Gentile, non-Jew, to a widow with a son who had a little bit of flour and a little bit of oil. Remember the story? And he said to the woman, make a biscuit for me. Well, if I do that, I don't have anything left. Make a biscuit for me. She makes the biscuit for him, and she never ran out of flour and she never ran out of oil again. Elijah did a miracle of God, but he didn't do it for Israel. He did it for non-Israel, someone else. Tells a second story. Elisha, that follows Elijah, seemed to not get it together either because Elisha, there was tons of disease like leprosy going on in the house of Israel. It says in Israel at the time, but Elisha is the man to whom a Syrian captain of the army named Naaman came to to be healed of his leprosy, and Elisha healed him. Remember his story? He told him to go dip in the Jordan River, and he didn't want to do it, and he came back later, and he did it, and he was healed of his leprosy. A Syrian, non-Jew, captain of the army of Syria, history here, and Elisha healed him and the people of Israel that had diseases and leprosy were not healed at all not a one that's all it took for the people of Nazareth his hometown his own people in the flesh his relatives to go into a fury into a rage and decide to kill him why because Jesus set down this cardinal tenet of the way God works. From the beginning of time to the end of time, applicable to you and to me, I have not come to be your Hamashiach, the Messiah for you only, but for the nations of the world who don't know me and are not of the fold. Even some of the parables that come into, into focus when we think there are 99 that are safe. I'll go for the one that isn't and risk my life. There's so many stories. It even parodies the, it, rather, it parallels this whole story of the plan of God's people from Abraham when he said, Abraham, you and Sarah are going to have a child. And from that child, she remember he had to do a miracle even for Sarah to have that child. He said, from that child, this whole nation of people will rise up like as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sands on the seashore. They'll be so numerous and I will pour out my blessings on them. Caveat. 
in order to be a blessing to the non-Jew, to the others, the goyim, the Gentile, the ethne, someone else. And from that beginning and throughout all of history, even today, through the life of Jesus and up until today, God's single theme is that I will come and be your Messiah, but not for you alone, but for someone else. Do you ever think that Jesus is not your personal Savior and Lord? He's not a pocket Jesus. You can put him in a pocket and just pull him out whenever you have a need or I have a need. Gina and I were driving over from the hotel, and as we were, I think it was four or five songs we heard, Christian songs and Christian radios, so many Christian songs and radios or radio stations up here in Ohio uh, and Atlanta too, down, obviously down in Georgia. For better or worse, and of the five or six songs, I think it was three or four of them was about Jesus and me. Just, he loves me. He blesses me. He gives to me. And I'm so glad he holds me tenderly and he nurtures me and it's about me. And I think this is one of the problems that enraged the people in Nazareth, that Jesus was confronting them with this me perspective of Messiah. And what we still suffer from today, it's the me perspective of what Christianity is about. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's not about the church of Jesus Christ alone. But it's about the others. Even to the point that the very last words of Jesus to his disciples when he ascended back to heaven, his last words, you know what they are. The famous last words. As you therefore are going, make disciples of the nations. Someone else. His last words were, you guys, you know, guys, you hung out with me for three or some years and followers, 500 some people that had seen him after he died and been resurrected and now his last words are what? The same thing. It's not about you, it's about others. I think it's what James means when he says that we pray and we don't receive because we want to consume it upon our own desires. I want to be healed. Why, Wayne? Well, to be healed. <laughs> I hate pain. I'm tired of this. I want to live longer the next few years. But why? You know, it took me a long time, way too many years, to figure out that God had blessed me with a disease that wasn't even about me. It's for someone else. And that if I were healed, I probably couldn't reach out to people who needed that disease in my life in order to be helped. How many people, if I had you all stand today, is there something that's really plaguing you that you're maybe even dying from? A man came up to me a little while ago. He said, tomorrow starts my retirement and I've struggled with cancer in my life. And he said, you know, I want my retirement to be about others, not about me. And his cancer, he never thought about it being about someone else. Did you realize that everything that God gives to us is for someone else and not for us? 
even your salvation. I know your sins are forgiven. I hope that you've received Jesus Christ and that you've trusted him and that you have received the forgiveness of your sins. And then indeed, someday, someday, not now, but someday, you'll live with him in eternity in a place called heaven. That's wonderful. Is it for you? Of course it is, but it's not just for you. It's that you might have that, that position in order to take the gospel to someone else that you have so richly cherished. And so that's why the nations of the world, 81,000 people continue to die every day in places of the world where they could not hear the gospel, even if they wanted to, could not even hear that message. Though God is doing amazing things in the, across the globe, among people groups that you never even could imagine, you can't even name, Islamic, Buddhist, Hindu, and even pseudo-Christianity. People are coming to Jesus Christ, and that's wonderful. And prophecy and fulfillment of the prophecy that Jesus was setting down here. That Messiah is not just for the Jews, it's not just for the Christians, it's for someone else. Jesus is for Islam. No, he's not. But he's from, for the Muslim. Jesus loves every. Muslim person. Even the vicious, most vicious terrorist. Jesus loves. I think of what God has given me over my lifetime, the good things and the not so good things, and I realize they're for someone else. Everything can be transferred into benefit for someone else. My house, my kids, were they just for me? That I'd have grandkids and then those are all I get, just those grandkids, you know? Is that about what it's all about? Grandkids and then great-grandchildren and then the name Hannah that somehow there's a legacy? No. No, 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 no. They're all for someone else. That I might nurture those kids in a way that they focus on somebody other than themselves. My wife, I was speaking, speaking to a bunch of guys, Cambodia and Japanese and, and uh, Filipinos the other week, November, over in Cambodia. And I was telling them a little bit about my story my testimony and I was saying my house is for someone else it's really to be a center for me to go out to others not for me to just enjoy it my car everything my bank account everything is for somebody else my wife is for someone else yeah they laugh too even louder than that <laughs> no one said I'll take her nope but I said now don't get me wrong she really is without her I would be dead no question. The way she takes care of me and she helps me. And I know the help me thing. Help me thing. My wife, all that she does out of her love for Jesus Christ and her love for me is not for me. It's not for us and our marriage. That's self-serving. It's really for someone else that we can continue to go. And our marriage could be a testimony to someone else who needs it desperately. I cannot think of one thing, help me if, I can, if you can, that God has given me that isn't really for someone else. The nations that have never heard or the person next door. God has given us America. You don't plod yet. What if America was given to us so that Muslims would come to Jesus Christ or immigrants that move next door to us or move into our cities would be coming to Jesus Christ? What if America was raised up, not for Americans, but for other people to know the gospel of Jesus Christ? It is happening. We live in Atlanta in a little circle of, maybe I said this, I don't know if I said it yet this morning, but in a, 
in uh, the earlier service in a circle of Northeast Atlanta where there are 147 of the least reached people groups right in our own neighborhood. It may be the densest and most diverse population center in all of the world in any city. You'd say even Los Angeles, yes. Remember the word densest, concentrated, North Africa, Asian, uh, Latin American, everywhere. We walk out of our, our apartment, we don't know, I said what I said earlier, what language we're hearing often. We are in Atlanta for someone else. It certainly wasn't to find safety, place of comfort. What about you? So what is the resolution? Just one. It's not about diet, getting buff, getting better. Those are self-serving. And Jesus is saying to the people in Nazareth, I can be a self-serving Messiah, that's what you want. I can be your personal Messiah, but I'm not going to be. And they said, well, if you don't like this Messiah, we'll kill it. Kill him. Well, what about us? So we have 2015, and a lot of years yet ahead of us. What one resolution would dramatically, radically change your life? Is that you saw every blessing, every good thing, and every bad thing was given to you for someone else. Even people you don't like. It all comes down to our focus on Jesus. Do you really want to be like Jesus? Do we really want to be like him? Jesus lived. And he died for everyone else. You bow your heads with me. Just seek a quiet place in your own life, in your own heart, this moment. What will you do with this? Are all the good intentions for myself? Or is my life one that's poured out like Jesus was. No matter how much it hurt, even to the point of standing on the brow of a cliff, poured out for someone else. It's in the little decisions that we make this year that will fill this resolution of Jesus in our lives in 2015.